I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show, the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. You can say hi to us on Twitter if you fancy, at The Phil Hay Show. I'm Dan Moylan, and on the show today from The Square Ball, Michael Normanton. Hello. And of course, from The Athletic, here's Phil Hay. You wouldn't believe how many times we recorded this intro, <laughs> but we're off and running. Happy new season, everybody. Don't spoil the magic. The football season is back, so it's the perfect time to subscribe to The Athletic right now. You can join, read all Phil's articles, everything he's written, everything he's going to write on Leeds United, and so much more from the Premier League and a host of other sports. 33% off at the moment, the price of a full sub at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. What's on it this week, Phil? We've had a bit of a dig into Matthias Cleek's form last season and had a bit of a closer look at, at why it was that after two and a half very, very consistent years under Bielsa, he, he seemed to dip um, and, and go off the boil. Uh, we've also got a big piece before the game against Manchester United on the night in 2012 when Bielsa and Athletic Bilbao took Old Trafford. Speaking of Bielsa, we're going to break off uh, after part two so you can dive into the press of Phil. So we'll hear from from the great man, find out what's going on, find out if he's going to sign that contract and all that. And we will get into transfers in just a little bit. So the big question is, you ready? Everybody's been asking that. It's past two or three weeks. That seems to have been the question. Are Leeds prepared? Are they ready for the season? Um, I think that relates as much to the amount of transfer business done as anything else. But inside the club, they certainly think they're ready. They've been... Very happy with pre-season. The physical performance stats are, are up on last summer, um, up a good 10-15%, which I think shows again how hard Bielsa is pushing them and the fact that no matter how good it seems to get or, or how much progress they make, he's, he's always got another whip to crack. And I thought it needed a good performance against Villarreal to finish the summer off. I definitely thought they, they got one. It was more sprightly. It, looked, it just looked more like Bielsa's leads, uh, more coherent. The usual counter-attacking was there. The pressing and the movement was there. I thought Cleek had as good a game in the centre of midfield as I've seen for a while, albeit I didn't see too much of the, the very back end of last season. Um, so it's not to say that, you know, there isn't more to do transfer-wise. I don't think a huge amount, but, you know, Leeds would still like a, a centre-mid, still got the door open to a winger potentially. But when it comes to preparation, uh, I spoke to Stuart Dallas after the, the Villarreal game, and I know he's highly unlikely to say, we're not ready and, and we're a mess. But you usually get it pretty straight from Dallas. And he just said this preseason has been dead on. You know, he said that I, I was going to do that in a Northern Irish accent, but I don't I don't want to offend anybody. But he said the players are now returning so fit after every summer that it's become a bit of a it's become a bit of a competition. And he was joking that he's a bit tired of it because he likes to go away and enjoy himself, you know, during the off season. But given the way everybody's returning and, and the sort of stats they're producing, you know, right from the start, you, you really do have to look after yourself. Given the culture shift, how tired is Junior Firpo at the moment? Have we have we seen any reports of him like dragging himself across the car park? Well, he was talking the other day about the fact that he's seen more videos, analytical videos, in you know two months at Leeds, not even two months, but the, the time he's been here than he has done in, in all the time, or he did do in all the time he was at, at Barcelona, which is not a huge surprise. And there's a definite difference in the training regime here to what was going on at, at the new camp. And that was part of the pitch to him when, when Leeds signed him, was to say, you know, Otto always explains as part of it, this is what training will involve 
it's not a joke. You will seriously have to do all of this stuff. So long and short of it, if you don't fancy it, don't sign. If you do sign, be ready for this. And and they've pushed Firpo hard. But obviously he's missed the last two friendlies through injury. You haven't seen Llorente recently either. He's had, had a muscle pull. So whether or not Firpo will actually be ready for Old Trafford, we'll find out a little bit later from Bielsa. I would suspect that even if he kind of is physically ready, it might well be Bielsa being Bielsa, that it's Dallas at left back and, and Cleek in, in the centre of midfield. But I think physically they are very, very happy with how it's gone this summer, regardless of the results and the and some of the performances in pre-season. I reckon you could take Graham Smith, by the way, if you're going to offend Northern Irishman. You could have him. Well, there's Dallas as well, remember, and Dallas is good at everything, um, including car park fighting, I would imagine. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to risk it. How are you feeling then, Michael? Now we creep closer to it. But we've spoken across the last few weeks about your existential terror. Are you fine about it all now? I was actually listening to The Guardian's preview on the way in and um, them going through all the really bad teams in the, the division did make me feel a little bit better. I was thinking... Yeah, do you know what? Palace probably are going to be bad this year because it's it's all a bit tr- untried for them and new manager and everything. So I was like, we'll probably be above them, probably be above Norwich. Uh, Wolves, I can't see them doing much. It's kind of when you go through it, I think, no, we, are, we actually are going to be fine. Whether or not we can be better than fine, it remains to be seen, I suppose. I'm looking forward to seeing us play with the proper left back when Firpo is, is fit because essentially we've not had one for a very long time. I know Douglas was here, but he never. He never got established in the team. So you're going back as far as, I guess, Charlie Taylor to some when I think we had like a good, obvious first choice left back. So it'd be interesting to see how that changes the team. But um, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. The it's, pitch looks good as well, which is which is a nice thing. I saw a video of that the other day and it did make me have a little bit of excitement. I don't know why, it's just some grass. Well, <laughs> and artificial fibres and stuff now as well. But um, yeah, that gave me a little, a little buzz seeing that. It's funny, Michael, saying that I think we'll be fine. I feel like that's been the point of discussion, really. And and I guess the point of frustration is I don't get the sense that people think that Leeds are going to get dragged in. And and I'm the same as Michael. When I filter through the clubs who look like they might be in trouble this season, I I think Leeds have the the beating of them and and some of them quite comfortably. But it seems to be the question of are Leeds going to actually move forward this season? Are they going to improve as a team, develop as a team? Are they going to improve their league position? which having finished ninth last season is pretty difficult to do. We did a preview at the start of this week and, and part of it asked me, you know, what would be a good season for Leeds? And, and I said, second time around, I know it's not very romantic, but anything that represents a steady second season and a steady mid-table finish would, I think, be good enough. It kind of lays the ground a, a little bit more for stadium development. It gives you a third year in the Premier League. It brings in more money. It potentially improves some players who can improve further again. I, I don't think that would be... That would be a problem. I think if you're looking for European qualification or looking for them to jump forward from ninth, then that is not impossible, but I think it is quite a big ask. I've reflected on this, having spoken to Angus Kinnear over on the Square Ball podcast, and we concluded on this point. I think I'd probably be happy with a top half finish. I know that's not very exciting and it's not very romantic, but I'm trying to project my mind forward to May. And I think if May came around and we were 10th or above, I'd be delighted with that. The strange thing about mid-table finishes, though, or, or you know, a top-half finish, is that in the Premier League, that there isn't a vast difference between finishing ninth and, say, finishing twelfth, thirteenth. It's it's not as if there's a stratosphere between the two parts of the of the league. There's a big difference between finishing seventeenth, sixteenth, and knocking on the door of of the European places. And I think that's what Leeds will want to avoid. They certainly won't want to get into any you know mixing at all with the with the bottom three, but I think they'd be disappointed coming out the end of this season if they'd, you know, if they'd been down in that ballpark rather than pushing up the league. But I think there's there's a, a fairly sort of wide area in the middle of the, the division where 
a finishing position there would be absolutely fine. And it's one of the reasons why I think I'll always regret the fact that there weren't supporters there for the, the promotion running but also last season because it was just such an explosion of form and noticeable improvement again. And and it's unfortunate that people kind of weren't there to, to witness it properly. I think that's the thing. Same again, but with fans in would be fine. We just need to be able to enjoy it for a season because I think last year would have been so much fun had we been able to be there. I'm not expecting a huge amount of progress because we've not made the signings that would suggest that, have we? But it's um, the way we finished last season was brilliant. So more of the same will be will be perfectly adequate. And we're very good as well. I, ha- I sometimes have to remind myself of that. And I think that's probably what's absent in the thinking of the antsy feeling. That it's the way that I described it when I spoke to Angus Kinnear. And the club acknowledge it as well. They know that everyone's been getting a little bit antsy just because it's been quiet. It's just been a quiet summer. There's not been a great, a right lot to report. And we haven't signed loads of players. So it's kind of a filling the void with with anxiety, isn't it? Do you, do you think they've, um, they've done enough in the transfer market, Phil? And, you know, we're always beholden to Bielsa on the transfer policy. It's going to be what he wants ultimately but it, it does when we say this every time it feels a bit threadbare well just to touch on your first point I think the antsy feeling it exacerbates it when suddenly you get hammered by Ajax and that automatically even despite it being pre-season and despite the realisation that Bielsa one of the things Bielsa always does is he fits the friendlies in, in amongst the horrendous amount of training you know so the players get players get flogged to the point where, where they're exhausted. and But he's tended in the last week before the start of the season to just tone down a little bit, almost to taper it slightly. And it, it has this effect of lighting the fire again and having everybody fresh and ready to go. And, and hopefully that will be the case this, this weekend. But then you, you play Villarreal, who are you know the Europa League holders, Ajax, who are Champions League quarterfinalists. These are games where you kind of risk that sort of result and you risk that that kind of treatment. And they played very well against Villarreal. They, they were the better, better team, I felt, for for an hour. And if you're going to say, well, it's only pre-season against Villarreal, then it's only pre-season against Ajax. And I did think if you were kind of objective about the team against Ajax, it, don't get me wrong, because of the way he he manages the squad, you could conceivably have that lineup in a Premier League game. But the defence in the centre of mid where Robin Koch was, was a mile away from what you would consider to be his first choice back five. Transfer-wise, I think if they get a centre mid and a centre mid that Bielsa is happy with, then I think they've they've done enough. I wouldn't say no to another winger. You know, I wouldn't say no to to an upgrade on Costa, who I, I still feel hasn't ever really done it um, at Leeds. And perhaps he will, you never know, but it, it just feels as if he's kind of hit the level that, that he's going to get to. But I don't think it's essential, particularly with Harrison there and, and Rafinha. I think the piece we were writing about Matthias Cleek, you know, it was saying that he was on painkillers in parts of the second half of the season with that hip injury and it did feel as if the wear and tear had finally caught up with somebody who'd been, you know, basically a machine for two and a half years and had been able to play and play and play. And that's why a bit of a balance of the workload in that area would be very good. Um, it doesn't look as if Adam Forshaw is ready to steam straight back in. You know, he's been playing with the 23s, but because he hasn't been with the first team you would assume that there's going to be a bit a bit more needed from him. So that, to my mind, is the area that they they do they do need to deal with. Um, I think there's still a chance that that it will be Lewis O'Brien who who comes. The, the last time I was speaking, there was no financial agreement there, and I don't think Leeds want to go to the, the sort of eight million plus that Huddersfield are asking for him. And it's not so much a case of having the money; it's more a case of trying to properly evaluate his value and dis- decide whether or not. That is a sensible investment. But if they can get him, then then I think they will do. And if they do, then given what they said they were going to do this summer, given how it was planned out, I think that's okay. 
Do you see any any change in the Ryan Kent situation? Because he's someone that we've been linked with forever. He's kind of the new Billy Sharp for us. Rangers now out with the Champions League. Does that mean that he's he's likely to be on the market? Well, our Rangers writer John Campbell thinks that they will sell now, and they they will sell players. They will try to to get money in minus Champions League earnings. Um, and Kent is an obvious one to go. The one thing Leeds won't do is meet Rangers valuation, which is about twenty million pounds, and they certainly wouldn't pay a massive chunk of that up front. It would they, they would want it to be incentivised. But I, I've said before on this, I, I can't quite read what they're going to do with a winger. I can't tell if they're going to take the plunge and, and get on with it. They've done a lot of analysis of Noah Lang. Um, he's somebody Victor Alter in particular likes, but they've never actually moved on him. You know, they've never they've never tabled an official offer and, and they've never got 100% serious with it. I think still top of the list would be a centre mid. But the fact that they at this stage, I know Angus said to you earlier in the week, you know, his I think he said his money was on nothing more happening before the end of the window. So that might be how it pans out. But I think there is still a, a chance of O'Brien. And I think that is that is the area they'd, they'd want to do before worrying about anything else. Yeah, he did qualify that by pointing out that they signed Rafinha, um, having been <laughs> in a similar situation last year. So it sounds as much like it's about the right opportunity coming up at the right price. And it does sound like the, the valuations of O'Brien are, are a little way apart. But, you know, as the, as the closing of the window gets ever closer then it can sharpen minds can it well absolutely I mean if when we Rafinha was first linked um, the start of last summer um, the summer transfer window and when we spoke to people at Leeds they would say well he is somebody we like you know he's somebody that we've we've looked at both Alter and Bielsa but um, he's not available you know Ren have said he's not not going to be for sale and you could understand that because they were going into the Champions League and you assume they want to retain him and then the final weekend of the window Alter gets a call from Deco to say, you know, he's for sale. If you want him, you can get him and they're selling him for 70 million. So straight away leads were, were in for him. So that sort of thing can happen. And that's why in my head, I've never ever ruled out Dan James because if suddenly Manchester United said, look, you, you're free to go. I'm not free to go. They take money for him, but you can leave if there's another club out there who'll take you. Then I think Leeds would, would be in the market for him or, or would at the very least be tempted. So yeah, it's all that sort of unpredictable stuff. I think if O'Brien comes in, then you can consider the the sense you know the the hunt in the centre of midfield closed. Beyond that, we'll have to see. Because we've kind of we've got what three into two at the minute in central midfield, don't we? When it comes to number eights specifically, kind of click Dallas Calvin as a deep line midfielder. But um, there's those two sort of two positions in there where you've you've not quite got enough, and Forshaw's not quite there yet. And yeah, I mean you can't rely on him after two years, can you? There's Shackleton too, although. I'm not sure when we'll see him back, given the, the head injury that Ajax, he's been going through some concussion protocol and, and that will depend entirely, we'll probably find out from Bielsa later, but that will depend entirely on when he gets the, the okay to resume. Although Bielsa, it feels to me like Bielsa has always seen Shackleton as a bit more of a fullback than than a centre mid, even though Shackleton certainly thinks of himself as a as a midfielder. And as I say with Forshot, his body seems to be holding up. You know, he, he seems to have gone through pre-season fine. But there's a big difference between that and being up to the levels of intensity that you're, you know, you're going to face in the Premier League. There was a stat, I think it was Sky Sports published the stat earlier this week, which was showing that the sprints at Leeds over the course of the season were miles beyond everybody else. I think somebody said there were about a thousand more sprints, individual sprints by players, compared to other teams in in the division or the next best team um, in the in the division in that field. So you can't come into that team half cooked, and we've known that for a for a very very long time. But I think Forshaw will know himself that he has to be totally ready before he gives it a go. And do you think O'Brien 
would be interested in the move. I mean, the poor kid, he's been at Huddersfield. He went on loan to Bradford. Surely there's got to be some sort of intervention soon. <laughs> I, th- I think it goes without goes without saying. I, I was a little surprised that Conor Gallagher didn't want to come here. I don't know whether we're biased, but I kind of feel Bielsa, you know, is well into his 60s now. He's, he's not going to be around forever, although I do think it's quite interesting. There was a quote in the Bilbao piece that we've done this week from and- um, Ander Herrera who said this guy should just should never stop coaching, he should just go forever. And I kind of feel the same. But I don't know whether we get a bit biased about him and, and you know, the, the appeal of working under him. I would have thought that the opportunity to work under him for even a year would have been something that you'd have thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. So that, you know, further down the line, I, I've kind of had that chance to observe it and to see it. And, you know, when people talk about Bielsa, I can say, well, I was there in the flesh. And I know, you know, and the idea that you might improve as well. But Obviously, Palace is closer to home. I think Chelsea are very much saying to Gallagher, "You could be involved with us further down the line, so it maybe suits him to be a little bit, a little bit closer to to Cobham." But um, O'Brien, I don't think there's any doubt if he gets the chance to jump from Huddersfield to Leeds, then he will. What makes for a good price for O'Brien? Then where would you pitch it? I would have thought somewhere five or six million would seem about right. Really, um, I think Huddersfield would would prefer much closer to ten. I mean, it's difficult because there's the argument that he's never played in the Premier League before. You know, you could say that about other players who, like Ollie Watkins, for example. You know, Villa paid almost thirty million pounds for him, so that that isn't an exact science, and it's not necessarily a justification for a for a low fee. But if you're getting somebody like Harrison, for example, for eleven million, who has had three really strong seasons under Bielsa and a strong season in in the Premier League, if you're considering O'Brien's value to be to be relative to that, then it it probably needs to be lower. Let's not forget, though, he has made one Premier League pass already in his career because he teed up Emil Smith-Rowe, didn't he, for the goal against West Brom for Huddersfield, and that sent us to the Premier League. Well, that is true. That is true. And and on that basis alone would be a good signing. Just to prove a point to Huddersfield. And with you, Michael, on this, is like, if we want him, we should just have him. No one should stop him. He should be allowed <laughs> to just jump in a cab and get here straight away because, uh, yeah, they've no business holding him. The interesting thing about Bielsa, though, is that he's not only bothered about talent and ability so you need to get somebody who, who fits his framework and if they don't then he's not interested but he is quite big on value as well and it's been the case from time to time over the years where they've spoken about a player and he's been told what the you know what the cost would be what the price would be how, how expensive it would be and and he said I don't think that's good money you know I don't think we I don't think we should spend that so whether or not he thinks 10 million pounds on O'Brien is sensible cash is a moot point it, it's tempting to sit back and say well when you're in the Premier League, ten million pounds on a player is not a lot of money. Still, um, still, ten. I mean, if I had ten million quid, I'd rather keep it than give it all to Huddersfield. Absolutely, and you know, if you can get him for half the price, then it potentially funds a couple of twenty threes deals. And obviously, it looks a little bit like Helder will be coming in from um, Celtic. That's been on the cards for for a long time now, and they are kind of peppering the twenty threes with deals at a million pounds, one point five, a little bit less. Um, it does just spread the the finance a little bit more. So you never want to. You never want to overpay, but I think as the window goes on, I find it hard to imagine that O'Brien might not be sitting there thinking, listen, this is a, a kind of glaring opportunity for me and I'd really like to take it. And not to be too patronising to Huddersfield, but well, but being patronising to Huddersfield, five million quid is still a lot of money for them. Like that would be, I think, well, their turnover will be 15 million, 20 million, won't it? With, I don't know if they're still getting parachute payments, but they don't earn that much money as a club. So... They should, no, but they should I, really just take it and be grateful, is what I'm saying. I, I, I do try and put myself in the shoes of Leeds back in the Championship when they were selling everybody like Snodgrass for £3 million. And you know, they, 
the argument that, well, you know, Leeds could do with three million pounds didn't really wash that well uh, round here. So it, it'd be the same, the same over there. You've got to, you've got to hold out for as much money as you as you can get when you've got players who are who are good assets. But you always hit that crunch point where if you're depriving a player of a move that they're desperate to take, and I assume he's pretty keen, then um, it, it becomes difficult. Angus did speak on Monday actually about Bielsa trying to. Uh exercises duty of care over the club's finances as well. And it's good that, you know, he compared to other managers will do that and not just spend money for the sake of it because it might make them look a little bit better. David yeah. O'Leary. Um, yeah, I mean, there's others that... Um, Warnock. Have, yeah, I mean, <laughs> your words, not mine. Um, Angus also spoke of uh, of the development of the ground as well. And that always gets pulses racing, doesn't it? The idea of people inside a, a shiny new Ellen Road that obviously preserves all the atmosphere, but 60,000 of us in there uh, maybe in uh, in a few years' time. It's quite an exciting prospect, isn't it? It is. I think part of me will miss Ellen Road as it is now, though. I don't think you get many stadiums that are more more raw, more kind of, I guess, passionately aggressive. I mean, I'll, I'll get an absolute kicking for this, but there is part of me who loves going to Millwall. I mean, I know there are things about Millwall that mean that, that you kind of shouldn't, but... Every time you get down there, you just know that you're in for a proper game and a proper atmosphere. And it's it's always like that at, at Ellen Road too, especially at the moment. I mean, the way people have kind of latched on to what Bielsa is doing and, and gone with it has been has been wonderful. And you'd be sad to lose that. But I think, as you're going to find with the Premier League long term, there are concessions, aren't there, when you, um, when you get promoted. And you have to know what's good for you. And a 35,000 all-seater stadium is not good for you when you can sell twice as many tickets. And when you're trying to compete commercially with clubs like City and Tottenham and Liverpool and, and Manchester United, you've got to have money coming in from all angles. I always remember Kinnear saying, if you go down to Spurs, look around the ground, but then more importantly, look at the money they pull in on an individual match day. It just absolutely dwarfs what Leeds can do at Ellen Road. So it has to be done. And it's nice to think that they would have a you know an enhanced stadium on the same site because the last thing I'd want to see them do is, is to leave that patch. It's funny, isn't it, how we accept a, a redeveloped stadium and they're going to do basically all of it, said Angus, barring the East Stand, which will get renovated. But we accept that because it happens. It's like Trigger's broom, isn't it, in Only Fools and Horses. Replace the handle, replace the head. But just do it gradually over time and it's still Ellen Road, even though the only thing that will remain is the grass and the East Stand. And the main bit we're left with is the uh, the bit that Ken Bates stuck his horrible cladding all over. And we, <laughs> and we hated it at the time, but instead we're like, good old East Stand, eh? Still magnificent as it was in 1993. Yeah, it's funny with the, the South Stand, that's probably the, the part of it which will change least. It's not that it won't change at all, but it will be, they will have ways of, of expanding it slightly, but they are massively constrained because of what's what's behind it. But I think what you will be left with, if the you know if it's kind of based on the, the designs they're talking about, is a bit of a bowl which runs from, you know, which kind of dips for the South Stand and, and potentially the, the North Stand as well. But runs pretty much from the east stand all the way over over the west. It will look it will look incredibly impressive. A bit like Lansdowne Road. That's the closest example I can think of, which is a three sided um, mega bowl, and then they've got the away end by the the houses behind the goal. Well, it just is what it is. And if you want a brand new identikit stand, go and build something near Garforth. But if you want to stay there, you have got to work with the footprint that's around it. And that Ellen, you know, Ellen Road is never going to move, um, and is never going to never going to go. So make the best of it. But I think if they're savvy with it and cute, then they can definitely get it up to 55, 60,000. And commercially, the difference will be absolutely enormous. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's get into the realms of magic and mysticism now then and talk about Bielsa at Old Trafford. Not this weekend, but when he took Bill Bow to Old Trafford and beat them, it's become quite a legendary performance this one. It was 3-2. Was it the UEFA Cup it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Europa League first leg of a quarterfinal. And when you speak to people in Bill Bow, they are inclined to say that this is arguably the best performance the club has ever produced, certainly that they can remember. There are others to compete with it, particularly the 2 all draw with Barcelona earlier that season in La Liga. Some people still speak about that as one of the best La Liga games ever. But that was really the, the game that announced Bielsa's Bilbao and, and made everybody properly sit up and say, and, and notice the difference. He'd, he'd inherited Bilbao at a time when they were pretty defensive, they were quite stagnant, they, they weren't inspiring a lot of people in what is a really passionate region. You know, they are hugely, hugely supportive of Athletic Bilbao there. And he turned them into this wild attack inside, beautifully structured, but, you know, very aggressive, very intense in a way that, that few other sides in Spain were. But when they were coming to Old Trafford, it was the first leg of, of a quarterfinal against the reigning Premier League champions. Um, and if you remember that season... Manchester United were, were going for the title again and lost on goal difference to, to Manchester City. They'd made a bit of a mess of the Champions League group they were in and they'd been eliminated. But, you know, they were far enough into the Europa League where they might conceivably win it. I, I have heard a lot about this over, over the years. So I thought to myself, I actually want to watch the entire leg back because I've seen the highlights and I've seen the goals and I've seen the, the, the little clips of what was amazing about it. But to watch it over 90 minutes, and I would suggest to anybody that has the access to do that, to take a watch, because it is really, really fascinating and it's an unbelievably good performance. There are periods of that game where they absolutely annihilate Manchester United. Ferguson has Giggs and Phil Jones as his midfield two in a 4-4-2. Bielsa has Susayeta, he has Munayin, he has Ander Herrera, and they are, they are incredible, the three of them. It, it's like watching a, a masterclass. You stick it on in, in the first minute, Bilbao get attacking down the right and they've got seven players in the Manchester United box and, and the commentator just says, God, you can see already what they're going to do and you genuinely can. And you've got Munayin at that point who's running everywhere and you're starting to see, because obviously Bielsa at the time wasn't particularly well known in England and I, I don't think a lot would have been known about his style and what made him particularly good. But you find Fernando Llorente tracking the centre-back back to almost the edge of his own box and you see the press and you see there's a corner early on for Manchester United which, blink of an eye, ends in Bilbao with a six-on-four at the other end of the field. As you go on, you start to see why it was such a big event for Bilbao and why it is that they still all talk about it now as one of the best games they've ever been to. Let's, just for the sake of the record, say we know that they're called Athletic Club. Because somebody, are, somebody yes. will pick us up on this. 100%, so yes. Let's just clear that way. We understand, but we're just calling them Bilbao, so everyone's on the same page. And yes. And I'll point a, a pin in a map. And they brought they brought a lot of fans, didn't they? 
Well, they asked for an increased allocation because they knew it was going to be popular. So they were given somewhere between eight and 9,000, but the estimates of how many travelled were a little bit more like 12,000, I think. Um, I don't know whether that was actually accurate, but in essence, there were a huge number of people in in Manchester and um, the club captain at the time was injured. He decided to travel with friends rather than travel with the squad. And he was seen on a local Manchester bus um, with other athletic fans just going to the ground because everybody knew it was going to be this massive event. And he wanted to be, he wanted to experience it in that way, the same as everybody else. They were a very good side that season. I mean, they really were. They got to the final of the um, Copa del Rey. They got to the final of the Europa League as well. And they were very much in the mix for a good um, finishing position in the league until it all sort of tailed off towards the end. But we, we spoke to Eric Steele, who was Manchester United's goalkeeping coach. And he was talking about Bielsa's mannerisms and he said it's the first time I'd ever seen a coach crouching on the touchline to watch the game. I'd never seen this before. And he said it was quite obvious that whenever Bielsa stood up out of that crouch, the players all noticed as if it was a case of, right, he's on his feet now, so be careful because he, he, re- you know, he really is on, on top of us. And Steele was saying that at one point he said to Ferguson, maybe you need to do that in the Premier League. Maybe this is something, you know, we need to bring to the Premier League. And Ferguson, who was massively, massively complimentary about Athletic and also Bielsa, I I think pretty much told him to fuck off, you know, pretty much said, you have to be joking. But it was, it's all these little things that you now take for granted with Bielsa, which are kind of his trademark and really commonplace. For the first time you you were seeing it. And there's, there's a spell of about, 10-15 minutes at the start of the second half where Manchester United get absolutely battered I mean De Gea is saving everything Laurenti shoots into the side netting it's chance after chance and it comes back to what people quite often think about Leeds when they haven't seen much of them people like Munain who is only 19 surely he can't do this for 90 minutes surely he cannot keep this going they're going to hit the wall at some point and it's him who scores the third goal. Bilbao, Bilbao win 3-2 on the night. And it's him who scores the third goal in the 89th minute. And he comes charging from about 30 <laughs> yards back while Raphael is half asleep in the box. De Gea's made a really good save from Oscar De Marcos and he's palmed it out. And Raphael seems to be saying to De Gea, oh, it's your ball. You get that, you get that. But De Gea can see... There are two of them, aren't there? They just need one of them to tidy it up. Well, that's it. But De Gea can see Munain steaming in from miles away. Aminayim beats him to the punch and, and smashes it into the, the roof of the net. And that's at a point where Bilbao are already 2-1 up away from home and where a lot of coaches would have said, right, OK, look, shape and structure, keep this tight, don't let them back into it. And that's kind of how it went. It was just utterly, utterly relentless. And it is worth watching because it is as good, at, at, well, it's probably better than any performance Leeds have produced under him. And that is, that's a very, very high benchmark because Leeds have been excellent. Just on Ferguson and the dugouts, did you see the, uh, I think it was a Guardian article about his bucket um, and it expanded into the general behaviour and conduct around the uh, the dugouts and it quoted in that famously that Ferguson had the dugouts at Manchester United rebuilt and raised. You know, they're, they're set quite high, aren't they? So he had a better view of the pitch, whereas Bielsa tends to be right down on his haunches, right on pitch side. But it did mention that Ferguson had the Man United dugout built slightly higher than the away one. Oh, just very so, good. Just so he had a very slightly... <laughs> loftier position and actually if you watch Solskjaer now he copies what Ferguson used to do and that's to sit on the back row of the dugout so he's got that slightly higher elevation well they did see from time to time at certain grounds lovely padded seats for the in the home dugout and then horrible plastic ones in their way and, and I would assume that the Premier League have kiboshed that and said no you know everybody needs roughly the the same sort of standard 
But there's a, there's a brilliant moment at the start of the second half because Ferguson is in the stands for the first half and then at halftime, he comes out late as he tended to, you know, he's sort of walking along the touchline as the game gets going. And you notice on the footage that him and Bielsa are both stood in Bielsa's technical area. Bielsa's a sort of, I, th- I think not quite sure what's going on, but Ferguson has basically stopped and is a bit frozen as he sees Bill Bow just piling into his team again, you know, and then eventually he moves over to um, to the right-hand technical area and, and makes way from it. But he said afterwards that they looked at the data, such as it was back then, and they hadn't come up against the team in 10 years who'd run as far as that at Old Trafford. You know, compared to, to Athletic, nobody really, really came close. But Herrera was saying, Bielsa, his words, he said, Bielsa just doesn't give a shit. He said, he doesn't care who the opposition are. We play like this away to Barcelona. We play like this away to Real Madrid. We play like this at home to Levante. If we're going to Manchester United, it's it's the same. And I was speaking to a journalist who'd, who'd been chatting to one of the players afterwards and this player told him that at halftime, it had gone one all just before halftime. Lorente had equalised. Manchester United had kind of scored against the run of play and, and were looking like doing what they so often did in European ties, which was just digging it out. And they were very, very good at that. But Lorente equalises with this header and at that point, Ferguson's defence have kind of no longer got any idea of who to mark and who to track because the ball just just keeps coming and this player was saying to the journalist he said at half time Bielsa just said to us listen I don't care if you're away from home I don't care if it's Manchester United basically you're the green team you're better than the red team and you better win this game you know because you're positioned to do so and they did I mean the second half was even better than the first and it's just a, it's just a wonderful wonderful moment wonderful wonderful piece of football that if you can watch from start to finish you really should there's loads of stuff in there that feeds into the whole Bielsa myth and gives us a, a greater understanding of, of what he's like because you read these things and you go, ah, recognise that, recognise that. Like Bilbao trained on the morning of the game, for example, which is is insane. And Ferguson didn't have a clue what was going on with that. He was totally, totally baffled. I mean, he was he was shocked by a lot of what went on with um, Bilbao and, and what Bielsa was, um, was doing with them. And I think finished with a, a, a lot of admiration for him, I mean, Bielsa was quite sort of self-deprecating about that training session and, and tried to, so we asked him last year about it before they went to Old Trafford and he kind of said, the only reason we did it was because I was wanting to work on positioning and, you know, defensive scenarios, attacking scenarios. And even though you're training in the morning, if you know what you're doing, it means that you have to move less in the evening, um, which, you know, in theory, yes. But if you actually look at the way they play, the pressing and the running is is just off the scale. As I say, especially Munayin, every time he pops up, he's just covering 20, 30 yards and he just looks like he's never, never, ever going to stop. I mean, I spoke, to, when I did a piece on Murderball, I spoke to Andoni Areola, who was one of Bielsa's fullbacks, and he was talking about the training over there and how the night before they did the Murderball sessions, he would eat extra rice because he knew how exhausting it would be. So they were tip-top condition in the same way as, as Leeds are. And it makes you realise how long that's been been going on for now and it makes you realise as well the difference he was able to have there makes me wonder you know about coaching because that's the great unknown for us sat here you know we, we watch football all of us and we form our opinions on it but what I'd love to do is understand the difference between what Bielsa does as a coach versus someone like let's say I don't know Steve Evans for example because they're doing the same job but I want to know how different it is the language that they're speaking and the things that they're making the players do it, it fascinates me from from that angle it's the technicality of it with Bielsa and you've gone, I think, through this era of everything being 4-4-2 and managers not bothering with analysis and, and not digging into the 
the stats to an era now. And and this is what I this is what always interests me about Bielsa is that he's kind of been on this stuff for ages. You know, so long. If you go back to the the massive big dossier that he gave Guardiola after the Copa del Rey final, he was already into stats and numbers and, and performance levels at that point. But everybody is kind of on that bandwagon now. You've got Guardiola obviously, but even filtering down into the into the lower leagues. Look at Brentford. I mean, Brentford have worked on numbers for years and years and it's worked in the end for them. And, and you know, I, I think of all the clubs in England who've deserved promotion, they're definitely one of them because they've had a plan and it's been built on ideas and kind of imagination, but it's also been consistent and it's worked. I think between Bielsa and some other coaches, the, the intensity of it and the technicality of it is is like light and day. I'm, I'm due to speak later today and um, to Mikel San Jose, who was his, his centre-back, and it'll be very interested to, to hear what he's got to say about the, the experience. But Herrera said with the training, he would drill it and drill it and drill it until it was right. And if that took three hours, it took three hours. If it took 20 minutes, it took 20 minutes. But it never took 20 minutes because it never takes 20 minutes with Bielsa. And Herrera was saying, and this, this I should just say, this is from an interview that my colleague Adam Crafton did with him about four or five years ago. He was saying that in these training sessions, you think we've done this so many times and it's this over and over and over and over again and it can become repetitive, it can be a bit boring, it can be a bit frustrating. But then you get into the game and it works perfectly like it did at Old Trafford and they look like the most skilled and prepared side you have ever, ever seen. And they are totally and utterly fearless at a ground where teams just used to lose. It's funny, isn't it, that this game, the Bilbao game, was seen as almost their their zenith, I would say, because it's the one that's still still talked about. And yet that was the season. As you said, they went uh, far in the Copa del Rey. They got really far in this competition, made a decent fist of it in, in La Liga. This is where the Bielsa burnout myth started, wasn't it? I've always felt, though, that in order to get through that season, you'd have needed a ridiculous number of players and you'd have had the challenge as well of trying to rotate out of the team Munayin, Herrera, Llorente, guys who were performing so well that you would never want them not to play. I kind of felt that it was almost falsely built on that, the burnout myth. Yes, they did dip and, and yes, it all went wrong towards the end. But the Barcelona game in the Copa del Rey was Guardiola's last one as coach and they were, you know, they were basically untouchable. The final against Atletico Madrid uh, in the Europa League, Athletic Bilbao didn't play well, but Madrid were a very, very, you know, Atletico were a very, very good team and it wasn't really any disgrace losing to them. And they did dip off in the in the league. But if you have a look at some of the travelling that they did for the Europa League ties, they were all over the place. You know, latterly it was Schalke, it was Manchester United, but even the final was in Budapest, you know, so it, it was a really, really demanding schedule. And Herrera has said before that, yes, they were all absolutely knackered by the end of it. But I think given that they were fighting on so many fronts, they were always likely to be. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Third and final part of the podcast now. Uh, we are the other side of the Bielsa press conference and he, and he seems quite happy, Phil. He does. I, I love these press conferences because you go for two or three months through the summer without hearing from him. I, I was talking on the podcast last week that it, it becomes difficult to assess pre-season really accurately because until he speaks, you don't really know what he's seeing and you don't know whether he's happy or whether he's thoroughly pissed off or, or what's what's going on. First things first, he said right at the top that his new contract was resolved and it'll be 12 months, which is what we were expecting. It seems to be always 12 months at Leeds and and that takes him on to the end of this Premier League season. And if this Premier League season goes well, then most likely we'll be back in the same routine um, the following summer. But as you know from speaking to Kinnear and as we found out, you know, a, a year ago, they always get there with this. It's just wildly complicated and he never rushes and he and he takes his time. But essentially, very, very happy to to be here. And and I thought what was probably most telling was how happy he is with the summer and how happy he is with the state of play at Leeds United. Really, really pleased with the investment that they've made in infrastructure. Uh, so they, we talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, but they've funded the same pitch at Thorpe Arts that they've got at Ellen Road. Huge expense and, and massive investment. But something he really wanted, something he insisted on, on top of other sort of more aesthetic and, and superficial changes up there and and he said that he's constantly astonished by the way that they are willing to throw money at infrastructure projects which previous regimes let's be honest did not really invest in but he's also very complimentary about the recruitment and despite the fact that it's only football through the door as as we speak he said he's really happy with the group he's pleased with the way pre-season's gone he thinks that the way Leeds operate in, in a recruitment sense is very very professional and he had nothing but compliments for them and and the thing I would always say with Bielsa is that he never says this because he feels like he should and he never says it for show. If he's saying it, he he absolutely means it. So to go back to the question right at the very beginning of this podcast, are Leeds ready and are they happy? Um, He certainly is. And it seems to be very much the case that this infrastructure work is as important to him when it comes to keeping him happy as just about anything else, even the signing players. Well, go back to his time at Lille, which I know is very short and, and very volatile and blew up quite quickly. But one of the things he asked for as soon as he went in the door was sleeping dorms at the training ground. You know, that aside from recruitment, we need to build areas for the um, for the players to sleep. Uh, I said in, in, a, in the promotion article that I wrote about Bielsa that if you speak to people at the club, they'll tell you that he is as irate about delays to creating car parking spaces at Thorpe Arch as he is about injuries to players or transfer deals that go under. There's no differentiation between big issues and, and small issues. They're all major and they all matter to him in the same way. And yeah, I think, you know, going into this summer, yes, I want a left back and, and obviously football clearly fits the bill for him. But I think it would have mattered to him every bit as much than when he said, I want a training pitch that has, you know, the same undersoil heating and the, the drainage and everything else. If I can get that, then I'll be as happy as as getting players through the door. You know, that I would imagine was a, a key part of him agreeing to to stay on and and I always say this but I do think it's good because it it does his insistence and and also the reluctance of the club to say no to him does push them down routes that that it would be quite easily you know easy to avoid going down particularly when it comes to spending money do you think he'll play for a pub 
I'm not sure he will. If Fippo's ready, but he's missed out on a couple of games, hasn't he? he? He'll probably be quite tempted to play Dallas after the way the Villarreal game went. Dallas at left back and, and Clay in the middle. Um, Fippo didn't play against Ajax. He didn't play against Villarreal. And it's not always a deal breaker for Bielsa, but it quite often is. And there aren't that many players in his squad who he trusts to appear back suddenly and, and to play. Phillips is one who, at the drop of a hat and the click of a finger, seems to be able to just slot back into midfield. But when it comes to somebody like Rodrigo, Bielsa always takes his time with him. You know, there's never any rush back from injury or, or fitness. It can take Rodrigo weeks in a way that it can take Phillips days to get himself back up to speed. He'll probably be quite tempted to play football because obviously he is the out-and-out left-back, but he knows that Dallas so often does a very, very steady job there, a very good job there. I am usually wrong, so I would put my money on Cleek and Dallas, which means football will probably start. <laughs> and what about Phillips? Is Phillips going to be ready? And what does that then mean for the defence? Because Cock won't be in midfield. Phillips is fine, he said, despite the fact that he's had a short pre-season, but he was away at the Euros, so it's not as if he's been inactive for weeks and weeks and weeks, and he didn't have much of an extended period off. So he should be okay, and, and you kind of feel with Phillips like he definitely, definitely needs to play um, over there. Pretty crucial selection, that one. No Diego Urente, he's looking at another week or two with this muscle strain that he's picked up, and that's disappointing, to be honest. I thought... I thought he, he became more and more impressive the back end of last season. I thought you really started to see a Spain international there and a you know nigh on twenty million pound defender. I thought he was thought he was excellent. And I thought he very quickly jumped to the front of the line as the best of the centre backs. Um somebody who I think if he is fit for most of the season will play for most of the season. I think it'll be Lorente on the right, Cooper on the left to start with, although obviously not not this weekend, not until he's fit. I think on the right-hand side, um, Llorente's probably got that nailed down. I think on the left-hand side with Cooper and Strike, there's a bit more of a battle to be had there. And you definitely think he won't play two lefties together? No, I mean, even the, the Villarreal game on Saturday, he had Strike in the centre cent- of midfield, defensive mid, and he had Cooper and Robin Cock at the back, so a left footer and a right footer. And when Calvin Phillips came on at half-time, he played Phillips uh, on the right-hand side of the two centre-backs and obviously didn't get to speak to Bielsa afterwards, so you're guessing why he did that. But I think it probably is because um, if he moved straight back, he'd have had two left-footers. And it's it's like dogma, isn't it? It's just what he does and and what he sticks to, but you've, you've got to love it. How close do you think we are then to full strength? What will it look like at Old Trafford at the weekend? If Furple plays, I think, with the exception of um, Llorente, they pretty much are full strength. And actually, if you've got Dallas at left back and you've got Cleek in something close to his usual form, you know, his, his best form, I actually think that they're, they're pretty much there anyway. Uh, it was never going to change much, the team, this season. And I think, in you know, from, from front to back, it, it won't be that difficult to predict what it is that Bielsa is going to do over there. But left back seems to be the, the one position where he has to make a, a particularly big decision. And given that that's the only signing to date, that was always going to be the case. Sounds like he's absolutely ready for action then if pre-season has been as good as he's, he's made out, if he's that delighted with it. Yeah, the, the, the press conferences always take time to get going. He starts slowly in brief answers, but then towards the end, he, he spoke a lot about the return of the supporters and said what he normally says about the supporters, which is that if you have a game without them, then you don't have a game, really. Or you certainly don't have a business and you don't have a you know the sport as we recognise it. I think he'll, he'll have missed them greatly. But yeah, you could feel the enthusiasm coming out. And there just seems to be an, an air of calm around Leeds, which is kind of contrary to what the mood outside or how it's been for a couple of weeks. There's been a bit of tension outside the club about transfers. But I think with Bielsa, it's very difficult to argue with him when he starts saying that he's satisfied because you know, you've seen from experience 
at, at Lazio and other places that if he's not satisfied, then you tend to hear about it pretty quickly and, and pretty dramatically. So again, you've got a squad who, according to Dallas, are really content and feel really prepared. You've got a manager who didn't seem to have an issue with anything today. Recruitment, infrastructure, his contract, it all seemed to be in hand. They're in pretty good shape. Time will tell. Once you start getting results, you know for sure. And Dallas did say that to me, actually. He said, you know, I'm standing telling you that we're really prepared and we're better prepared than last summer. I don't have results to to back that up. But it's just kind of feeling of underlying confidence. And I, I felt that in Bielsa today as well. Do you find, Michael, that everything just calms down a bit when you hear him speak? I think so. And I think knowing that he's happy with things, because as, as Phil says, he's not someone to be quiet about it if things haven't been to his liking. And if he thinks the players aren't fit enough or something has not gone right on the transfer front, he would generally be fairly clear in displaying that he was not he was not happy. Even if he doesn't explicitly say it, you can tend to just judge from his mannerisms and stuff whether or not he's happy. So I think that's the thing that Bielsa has brought to Leeds. If he's happy, everyone can kind of go, oh, okay, well, if he thinks that's fine, then maybe it is fine. A bit like when Pontus left and everyone went, well, he's, he's kind of our best defender. We probably need to keep him. But if Bielsa doesn't want him and he thinks there's a way around this, then then maybe he's right. And, and he has been right so far. So there's not there's not an awful lot to argue. How do you feel we're shaping up then going into it, Phil? What does it look like to you? Pretty good. I think same shape as last summer, really, which is why I don't think there's necessarily going to be a massive bounce forward from ninth place. But I'd, I'd hope that there won't be a massive bounce backwards either. I totally accept that everybody has a different view of what they want from a club and, and what they expect. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a Leeds supporter. I don't pay for tickets. So my opinion kind of doesn't count to the same extent. But I just don't think it's a bad thing if they have a, you know, a, a year that just keeps them ticking over and, and is some form of consolidation. I think that you will see progress if they start properly pushing the stadium plan forward. I kind of wonder if next summer they might have to think about going bigger again in the transfer market. Player, some players will be a year older. It'll depend very much on how the season has gone, but you do need to refresh regularly. And it might be that big summer in terms of expenditure last year, followed by a slightly more modest one this time round, followed by another kind of major outlay next year is, is the way to go. But I do appreciate that they're on the back of a pandemic. They've had you know next to no support or income now for what feels like years and it's it can't be particularly easy to manage but I just think the thing you know with Bielsa is that you've got a set pattern of play that the players are so schooled in and again it was coming out you know in the Villarreal friendly and that was a very very good Villarreal side who found it quite difficult to deal with for an hour so I'm not expecting it to be utterly spectacular but I think it'll be good I think there's something about the fact the lack of transfers and the lack of turnover in the squad that makes it almost feel a a little bit boring. It's almost like you want to come back to summer and see some new shiny things. And But actually, if you look at the clubs that have had big overhauls in summer, like someone like Crystal Palace, who've got a new manager, a lot of new players, you think, while that does bring a certain excitement, it also brings complete uncertainty. And actually knowing what we've got, it's something nice to fall back on. And it's a way that until Bielsa arrived, we'd not been used to at Leeds because we used to have that thing where every summer there'd be six or seven go out, six or seven come in. And you'd think, What's this batch going to be like? And invariably, they were fairly useless. But it is about um, variables, isn't it? There are so many variables, like at Selhurst Park with a new manager. You have no idea what his style is going to be, whether he's going to be able to influence it. Whereas actually, a lot of Bielsa's success is built on repetition, predictability, stability, continuity. Uh, it's all those unglamorous things that actually, they're the bedrock of what he does. And exactly what Leeds were needing uh, when he, he first came in. That was what they couldn't get out of. The inconsistency, the only thing they were consistent about was being fairly mediocre and also kind of stumbling from crisis to crisis. And and even though 
you could see a, a bit of a sea change when Radrazani came in. There were still aspects of that first season of his which were a mess and didn't go well. In the Premier League, you've had big expenditure at City with Grealish. You've had Sancho um, and, and obviously Varane as well going to Manchester United and Lukaku going back to Chelsea. But you're talking there about three clubs who are a long distance really away from, you know, ahead of the rest when, when they play to their potential. Villa interests me because I, I almost feel if they do the right things with the money they've got left from the Grealish deal, having already done Ings and, and Leon Bailey, I think they could end up in a better position than they were with Grealish in the team. I think that could well be one of those deals that selling him is 100% the right decision for the selling club. And I think you'll have to go some at City to make £100 million worth of difference to that team. They, I don't think, can fail to be stronger and I think it'll be a problem for Dean Smith if they're not. But looking around, it's not that other clubs haven't strengthened and haven't invested. Leicester are going to do Vestergaard from Southampton. But I don't feel as if it's changed a huge amount. And I do feel that with some clubs, Burnley seem to have senior staff disappearing all the time. Not quite sure what, what's going on there or, or what's waiting for them a little further down the path. Southampton have lost things. They've lost Vestergaard. You know, they'll probably have to fight quite hard to keep Ward Prowse if anybody wants to take him. I just feel like Leeds are in a pretty stable position at the moment and that, that can't be a bad thing and it always had to be a bit of a process in the Premier League. It was it was incredible to see them finish ninth last season and not just ninth but with the points tally they did. I think everybody has to accept that they, it'll be a little bit wavy for a little while. And you look at where some of the money has gone quite apart from the top end of the market. Joe Willock at, at 25 million, even Ben White at 50 million and I'm thinking specifically of Arsenal there. I don't know if he's going to transform Arsenal's position whether he's going to improve them to the extent that 50 million quid you feel like it should same for like Willock at Newcastle you imagine they're going to be as a proposition very similar to the one that they were last season so it's an awful lot of money for not a great deal of return whereas it does feel like you look at the way where we spent 50 million last summer on the likes of what Rafinha Robin Cock and Urente put those three together for the same value and it's tremendous isn't it you have Ben White going to Arsenal then you have Arsenal going after Ramsdale and you can't really see the... I don't mean this with Ben White because I think he has the potential to be one of the, the best centre-backs going, although I, I do wonder how it will go for him there because they're not in, not in brilliant shape. But Ramsdale doesn't seem to fit. Good keeper though he is when he when he's at his best, he doesn't seem to fit in with the idea of trying to make that leap from ninth, 10th where Arsenal are into that ballpark of top four, really, top six, where they, they really should be or where they would certainly want to be. It just seems coherent at Leeds. And I think I think people often underestimate how difficult Bielsa is to recruit for in, in the sense of only wanting very specific things. And also probably forget that nothing he does is really predicated on spending lots and lots of money. You know, that has never been... I know, I know they did spend a lot last summer, but even so, the core of the team was still the same. The core of the squad was still the same. When he came in first time round 2018... He didn't change much about it. They signed Douglas, they signed Bamford, but it was still Roof who was playing up front. Douglas was a bit in and out. He was still working with the players who he'd taken on, so Cooper and Ailing and um, Cleek and Saez and, and, and others. And that's what it comes down to. It's coaching with Bale, so that's what, he, that's what he depends on rather than money. And that's not to say that you don't need to invest, but with him, I don't think it's essential that you invest to a certain level. What represents a good return for us at Old Trafford this weekend? I have to be honest, I don't much fancy this game. I, I think it. I think it's a really difficult start. The one unknown with them is it sounds like Sancho will be on the bench at best. Cavani isn't available. He's still away. Varane, if the deal goes through beforehand, will almost certainly 
come too late for him to start. I mean, there's not a chance if Bielsa was at Manchester United, God forbid, that um, if Varane would sign Thursday, Friday and would play on the, the Saturday. It just would not would not happen. So who knows exactly what the lineup's going to be like? I think more to the point, who knows how Leeds are going to play? If they're, I, I felt against Ajax that they were good at all the things they do badly and bad at all the things that they do well. Whereas against Villarreal, it was the total opposite. The things that they normally do well clicked and looked very decent, the movement and the counter-attacking and everything else. I think there's potentially something in this game for them, but it won't surprise me if it ends in a, a home defeat. I think the key this weekend is to play well and compete. I think you meant an away defeat, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, yes. <laughs> a home defeat, I would accept. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Away defeat, yes. I, and yes, I, I knew what you meant. But uh, as, the, as the ultimate optimist, what about you? I'm not the ultimate optimist, to be honest. I'm somewhere in the middle. I just flip and flop. <laughs> I, I'm 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 similar to you in that I, actually I can see something there for us. I've had visions on the Square Ball podcast of a of a repeat of the Beckford one nil in front of the Stretford end kind of kind of vibes. But equally, I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up taking a bit of a beating either, because um, we saw it last year. It just depends whether we get the maximum leads who come out the blocks or whether we got get something that's not quite there yet. I'm hoping for the former, but if I got the latter, would it surprise me? Not sure. And how big a route is uh, Mr. Normanton <laughs> predicting? I mean, we might catch them cold. I think that's the thing with opening day. You never quite know how what sort of level of fitness everyone's up to, how sharp they are. I think that's our best hope is that we're, they're not quite at it yet and that they've got players returning back from you know, from the summer, people like Rashford who are out still and Sancho not available. So there's a chance, but I'm not very hopeful. I would, I would hope for better than 6-2 as an absolute minimum. That was what I would hope for. I think I, I could probably accept like a narrow defeat, but um, a point would be great. I think the important thing is to see this game for what it is and, and to remember that there are a core of clubs in the Premier League who do win most weeks and who have invested massively this summer and should, technically speaking, be stronger. It's a it's a really, really hard game. There's no no denying that, but um, great start. And is there a danger of playing the um, the occasion rather than the game? That's the one thing that I worry about in, in that stadium because it's, it's full, it's big. The dynamic is definitely different, but they didn't play the occasion second time round last year when, when Manchester United came to Ellen Road and it should be said that you didn't have the crowd because I, I've never been lucky enough to see a league game between the two clubs. I've seen League Cup game there back in 2011 but all, even players like Roy Keane and Gary Neville, they always speak about Leeds. Ferguson used to say Liverpool and Manchester United is vicious but Leeds and Manchester United is just something else altogether and I don't think he particularly liked it actually. I think he found it was a, you know a, a bit extreme. Yeah, it's not going to be be the same, but they shouldn't play the occasion if they've learned anything from last year. And, and it was funny because before they went to Old Trafford, Calvin Phillips was talking about how he'd been going around the training ground and you know saying to people like Rafinha, "You need to understand what this means. You know, this game means this much, and this is what it's all about, and and this is the history of it." Really trying to cajole them. I don't think second time round they did that. I think second time round they tried to just. Not treat it as any other game, but just to trust the preparation and trust the, the usual process rather than building it up into something that, that it wasn't. It is mega um, and it's you know it's easily, easily the fixture um, of the weekend. But a year in the Premier League should teach them for that. I think the way we finished last season, it felt like we were feeling our way into games a little bit more. We were, we were giving it 10 or 15 minutes to get the, the measure of the other team and see what it was like. Whereas this, the game at Old Trafford, it felt like we went out really attacking and they just picked us off. Was it twice in three minutes or something? And it, and yeah, it was, it was all many. Yeah, it was all done, and there was nothing we could realistically do to get back in that game, other than keep attacking. Which meant it just became this horrendously stressful 
end-to-end game, which I was I just wanted to end as soon as it had started, more or less. Yeah, it was like a basketball match, wasn't it? In that you had we had to start chasing it, so we left ourselves open, as Michael said. Yeah, and yeah, not that we were necessarily more cautious in that kind of uh, drab Premier League way, but it was nice to see us become more tactically astute in the back towards the back end of last season. I definitely thought they were more cautious. Manchester United had more possession on the day. It wasn't the kind of out-and-out attacking that you were used to with Bielsa. I think he recognised that. But strangely afterwards, I didn't get the sense that he was unhappy about it. I think that isn't how he'd want his team to be seen. You know, he'd like his team to be seen as Bilbao at Old Trafford in 2012. But you do have to be a a touch pragmatic. And I think it, it will have satisfied him that having conceded six to, you know, give or take the same side at Old Trafford, it, it wasn't six at Ellen Road. And I don't know how, how he'll want to play this. He, he definitely will not want to be 4-0 down after half an hour. But I always loved the fact that at halftime at Old Trafford, he just said, I don't care what the scoreline is at the end of this. We'll 4-1 down, just go out and attack and, and keep having a crack. And there was that incredible save from De Gea, from Rafinha, I think at 4-1, which might just have changed everything. And I remember somebody asking Solskjaer afterwards, genuinely, said, are you disappointed that you didn't score 10 today? Because it was that sort of game. And there was an argument that Leeds could have conceded 10, but they could have scored 10 as well. It was just end-to-end and it was absolutely wild. And I think a neutral loves that game. Bielsa did not love that game. And I think he would definitely want to avoid it again. But when it comes to that style of play, he can't help himself. I think weirdly enough, we watched the, I think it's the Stretford Paddock is the Man United YouTube channel where they'd done a watch along of the game. And when we scored our first goal, they went into sort of a weird panic about it. Despite having a, a three goal cushion still, they were like, oh, they're going to come back into it now. They're going to be all over us. And that's the, that is the nice thing with our side now is that we people know we have it in us to still be dangerous even when we're, we're miles behind, which I think if you'd have gone in times past, if a David O'Leary side went a few goals behind at Old Trafford, you would just go, well... That's it. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing going to happen here. Well, when it went 4-2 at Arsenal back in February, I think it was, there was that little bit of you that thought, I just wonder here, because you could see in Arsenal's body language, they were thinking, look, for Christ's sake, we're 4-0 up. Like, why are, they, why are this bunch still playing like this? Why, why haven't they folded? And it didn't happen and it left them with too much to do. And I don't think realistically you get away with 4-0 deficits in the Premier League ever, um, with very, very few exceptions. Uh, so that, I think, is one way in which they can improve this season is to, to kind of cut out those days where it just feels like like kind of water going through a sieve. But you're picking hairs with a side who've just been promoted. I mean, you know, ninth place and 59 points last season was terrific. Right, I say we start off with three points. What do you reckon? No, I can't see it. Same. What are you going for then? Come on. I, I think it will be a home win. I hope it's narrow and I hope Leeds play well. I would take a draw, put it that way. I would also take a draw, but I think we will probably lose 3-2. Negative Nancy's the pair of you. <laughs> it's absolutely in the bag. Well, I guess we will check back in next week and find out exactly how this one has gone and how wrong I was. Uh, you can get in touch with the show at the Phil Hayes on Twitter and you can subscribe to The Athletic as well. Now, in time for the new season to read everything Phil has been talking about today and all the forthcoming stuff. Uh, there's Premier League stuff on there, loads of other sports. 33% off the price of a full sub at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll talk to you next week. The Phil Hay Show.